Hello, and welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 19, The Paris of the North. I'm Keith Halliday. And I'm Pascal Halliday. When we last checked in with Dawson City, it was 1897, just a year after Joe Ledoux laid out the town site. Today, we'll look forward another year or two to the peak of the gold rush, when so many of the myths and iconic images we associate with Dawson City came into being. Dawson City was, in the famous phrase, the Paris of the North. There are so many stories, some true, some not, and far too many for a single podcast. But we'll try to tell a few to bring alive what Dawson City felt like for that short, glorious, and mad year that lasted from mid-1898 until the exodus for the new Nome gold rush in mid-1899. Pierre Burton, in his book Klondike, describes how Dawson City ran on gold. Quote, on the creeks, men by the thousands tore at frozen ground in a frenzy to reach the pay streak, and then, in another kind of frenzy, rushed into town to squander the results. Gold was everywhere. You could buy anything with it. Everyone seemed to have a set of gold scales. Burton reports that the gold scales were kept on thick velvet cloths that were themselves panned in the morning to catch all the little bits of dust that had fallen out and accumulated there during their use. Bartenders grew longer fingernails, so when weighing out gold for drinks, a little more would stick on their fingers. Waiters kept their hands damp and rubbed them on cloths in their pockets to get extra gold. Dance hall girls such as Cad Wilson had nugget-encrusted belts. Some gold ended up with gamblers or sex workers in the little cabins they called cribs along Paradise Alley. There's a story of two children who panned the sawdust from the floor of the Monte Carlo and made $20, which would have been two weeks' work for their father at a regular job outside. Then there was the Kansas City kid, who often slept in that sawdust under the crap tables of the Monte Carlo. When he had to go to the hospital, they laundered his clothes and $39.75 worth of gold were found at the bottom of the laundry tub. Dawson abounds with stories of people, decades later, panning the dirt under old buildings and finding thousands of dollars of gold. It was a time of amazing entrepreneurialism. In practically no time, Dawson leapt from a ramshackle collection of frontier cabins to a city with more amenities than most other places on the west coast of North America. Burton runs through the list. Telephone service, running water, steam heat, electricity, fancy hotels, motion picture theaters, which were still a new thing at the time, fashions from Paris, three hospitals, and a bevy of churches, sports leagues, and social clubs. There was a restaurant where you could drink fine wine and eat pâté de foie gras while a string orchestra played Largo from Cavalleria Rusticana. Meanwhile, adventurers from around the world flocked to Dawson. Some were chancers looking to get a new start. Others were famous names from the American frontier or previous gold rushes trying to avoid settling down. Everyone seemed to have a nickname. Arizona Charlie, Lime Juice Lil, Deep Hole Johnson, Spare Rib Jimmy McIntosh, and Phantom Archibald. Phantom Archibald was famous for blowing $25,000 on a binge and believing himself to be pursued by a huge black python. Front Street was where the action was. Burton put it this way, quote, this was the most unstable as well as the liveliest section of the town. The buildings here were continually burning down and being rebuilt, changing ownership and managership, being lost and won in gambling games, and sometimes changing both name and location. The Palace Grand Theatre still stands in Dawson, and no visitor to Dawson should miss it. 
But a night out at the Palace Grand these days won't capture Dawson City fully in 1898 glory. The early dance halls were more rough and ready, and nothing can replicate the gold mania of the time. Picture the Monte Carlo Theatre at the height of its fame, a roughly built two-story building with big windows facing the street. First, you entered the saloon, where Joe Boyle, future king of the Klondike, was sometimes the bouncer. There was a big wood stove and bartenders in starch shirts with diamond stick pins. Then, the gambling room, where poker, faro, craps, and roulette were played around the clock, except, officially, on Sundays. Then there was the theater with a ground floor, balcony, and private boxes. Renting a private box was a sign of living large. One miner ordered $1,700 worth of champagne to his box in just one night. After the show was over, they cleared the floor, the orchestra reassembled, and the dancing began. It was the same system Tapanadney described at Pete's place a year earlier. It was a dollar a dance. A caller cajoled the men into stepping forward. There was a brief twirl around the dance floor with the girls, and then everyone went to the bar, where the women got a poker chip as a commission. The Monte Carlo even had hotel rooms which, as the joke went, could be rented for anything, even sleeping. Diamond Tooth Gertie remarked that the miners, quote, have just got to spend it. They're that scared they'll die before they have it all out of the ground. Gertie Lovejoy, known as Diamond Tooth Gertie once she got a diamond inserted between her front teeth, was one of the most famous of the dance hall girls. Others had nicknames such as Sweet Marie, Ping Pong, or Caprice. Flossie de Atley was described by one miner this way, quote, It was generally conceded by those in the know that Flossie could take a man to the cleaners a little bit faster and a good deal more completely than any other girl in town. Behind the stories of living large and fleecing miners, real life for the dance hall girls could be difficult. They worked long hours in a town full of lonely men, with binge drinking not just common, but celebrated. The bar owners and theater operators who managed the girls could be incredibly difficult to deal with, and many girls were in a vulnerable position alone in the North. Over the famous winter of 1898 to 1899, the Dawson City Nugget reported a dozen suicides or attempted suicides among the dance hall girls. Dawson's sex workers faced even greater difficulties. Although their work was legal, it was more endured than improved by the authorities. They lived and worked in Paradise Alley, two rows of little cabins located behind the theater strip. The cabins were called cribs, and there were at least 70. Each had a woman's name painted on the front, and most of the money went to the pimps who charged them for their passage to Dawson. Later on, Northwest Mounted Police Superintendent Sam Steele moved Paradise Alley further away, to a place soon known as Hell's Half Acre, and barred the girls from the streets until four in the afternoon. Treatment was often even worse for the women of color who worked in Paradise Alley, who faced racism from many in Dawson. As author Bay Riley has noted, newspapers from Dawson during this time mentioned sex workers of African and Asian ethnicity, groups who are often totally left out of depictions of the Klondike during this time. Gambling is another aspect of Dawson life where the mythology can conceal some real human pain. In a sense, going to the Klondike itself was a huge gamble. And in Dawson City, people bet on everything, from the roulette wheel to boxing matches to who could spit closest to a crack on the wall. That bet was for $10,000. Pierre Burton tells a lot of very sad stories. In the fall of 1898, a well-dressed man at the Northern walked over to the roulette table and put $1,000 on red. That's a nearly 50-50 bet, and it came back black. He did it again and lost, and again and lost. 
After he lost $10,000 in just a few minutes, he had a whiskey at the bar, turned to look at the roulette wheel for a moment, then went outside where he shot himself. Silent Sam Bonifield was probably Dawson's most famous gambling operator. He was also known as Square Sam, since he was reputed to always run an honest game, something that couldn't be said of all the gambling houses in Dawson. He would say that his gambling house made money because men who won would generally stop after winning whatever they wanted, a dinner or a few rounds of drinks. But the losers would keep playing until the bitter end to win back their money. Bonifield himself was an avid gambler who was said to never turn down a bet. He once lost $72,000 in a poker game, including ownership of his gambling house itself. Like he said about others, despite his bad luck, he borrowed money and played on. But in this case, six hours later, he had won it all back again. Bonifield played in the biggest stakes poker game in Dawson, versus the owner of a rival gambling hall named Goldie. The pot was at $50,000 when Goldie raised significantly. Bonifield called him and raised again, until the pot was a staggering $150,000. Goldie turned over his cards and showed four queens. Bonifield didn't say a word, but just turned over four kings. With few other entertainments in the winter of 1898-99, gambling was enormously popular. It was often a spectator sport, as dozens or even hundreds of people would watch big stakes games or men on improbable winning streaks. Those watching would often liven things up by betting among themselves on who would win or which card would come up next. A man named One-Eyed Riley was famous for his gambling addiction. He went on a winning streak one evening, winning game after game. Hundreds followed him from saloon to saloon, often copying his bets. By the morning, he'd racked up $28,000 in winnings. Management at one saloon recruited a card shark to put an end to his winning streak, but Riley decided to stop there and leave the Klondike immediately. He didn't even go to work to collect back wages, but paid a dog musher $1,000 to take him immediately to Skagway over the winter trail. Once he made it to Skagway, someone talked him into playing dice, and he lost all his money. Over that winter, as gold fever continued to grip Dawson and everyone dealt with the stress of being stuck in a small cabin in the cold and dark thousands of miles from home, strange events kept happening. A nine-year-old girl named Margie Newman, nicknamed the Princess of the Klondike, once sang a sentimental song on stage in front of a dance hall full of grizzled miners. They broke into tears and showered her with nuggets. By the end of the song, an audience member said she was heel-deep in gold. One January day, at the height of winter, a rumor swept through Dawson. A miner named Jim Doherty had discovered more gold on an unnamed creek downriver. Doherty was well-known. He'd already pulled $360,000 out of his claim on Bonanza Creek and was famous for his tailored silk shirts from London, taste for fine champagne, and ownership of two dance halls where the Oatley sisters performed. Some said Doherty had bought a map for $1,000 from a prospector and had a poke of gold from the new find. Word quickly spread that he was planning a secret expedition, leaving in the middle of the night, to stake out his second fortune. Hundreds of men assembled dog teams, packed their sleds, and got ready to follow him. At 11 p.m. on January 10th, Doherty and his friends finished their whiskey and sodas at the Aurora Saloon and stepped outside to their waiting dog teams. Hundreds of others were waiting, too. In the end, more than 50 sleds took off after Doherty and his friends. Others followed on foot. Arizona Charlie was said to have been seen leading an ox loaded with his gear. The temperature plunged to 60 below Fahrenheit, or minus 50 Celsius. When it was time for sleep, 
Doherty and his friends set up their tents, portable stoves, and thick sleeping robes. Others weren't quite so well prepared. On the second day, through deep, unbroken snow, Doherty led the group up a creek bed and over a ridge and pounded in his claim stakes. Everyone else that had made it that far did likewise. One man who didn't make it and went back to Dawson lost both his feet to frostbite. Others were maimed. Word spread through town that the land was worthless and that Doherty and his friends had started the stampede on a bet that you couldn't keep a secret in Dawson City. This was a time made famous in subsequent Hollywood movies by stars like Charlie Chaplin or by Yukon poet Robert Service in The Shooting of Dan McGrew. The Dan McGrew poem, which we've linked on our site, was made into movies in 1915 and 1924 and became a foundational image of the gold rush. Millions of schoolchildren memorized it, even decades later, around the world. U.S. President Ronald Reagan was one of them, and he was known for reciting lines from it and the cremation of Sam McGee when he met Canadians. He even recited it along with Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney once at one of their meetings. The opening lines give you an idea. A bunch of the boys were whooping it up in the Malamute saloon. The kid that handles the music box was hitting a jag-time tune. Back of the bar in a solo game sat dangerous Dan McGrew, and watching his luck was his light of love, the lady that's known as Lou. Real life in Dawson City has characters as outsized as in the poem. One of these was Arizona Charlie Meadows, who we've mentioned before. He grew up in the American West, and before the gold rush, rode in rodeos and Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. He could ride, shoot, and lasso. He's said to have organized the only bullfight in the lower 48, where, by coincidence, a young man nicknamed Soapy Smith was running the concessions. When news of the gold strike came, it was only natural such a free-spirited entertainer would join the stampede. His first try was a saloon in sheep camp on the Chilkoot Trail, which was swept away in the giant flood we mentioned earlier. He also suffered a nasty boat wreck on Tagish Lake. Once in Dawson, he speculated in claims and mining, but quickly realized there were bigger opportunities in Dawson City itself. He created a souvenir newspaper that glorified the big Klondike names and made at least $50,000 on it. His crowning achievement was building the Palace Grand Theater, which still stands today. Being short on lumber, they say he bought and disassembled two disused wooden steamboats to build the facade. On our website, we've linked an article on the Palace Grand in Arizona Charlie by Yukon historian Michael Gates. He reports that the opening night take at the Palace Grand was $12,000. It held a saloon and gambling table, and it hosted, quote, melodramas, acrobats, trained dogs, dancing bears, magicians, knife throwers, tumblers, and comedians. When the audience was pleased, in addition to clapping, they howled like malamutes, alarming passers-by outside. Arizona Charlie also put on a production of Camille, which megastar Sarah Bernhard was making famous in Paris. Unfortunately, the performers Charlie chose for the two starring roles as lovers were a divorced couple who loathed each other. In one performance, a supporting actress did not come on stage when her lines were called. It turned out she was behind the curtains with the occupant of a private box. This kind of thing didn't phase Arizona Charlie. Sometimes, if a show was flagging, he would come on stage and perform himself— as a skilled marksman, one of his tricks was to shoot glass balls out from between his wife's fingers across the stage. But this trick ended one night when one of his bullets nicked her thumb. Jim Doherty lavished his wealth not just on the Oatley sisters, one of whom he eventually married, but also on his dog team. This team was said to be worth $25,000. His custom sled included a minibar, 
a specially made tin tank containing alcohol. He could add hot water and ingredients from the sled and treat his friends to a quick morale booster as he traveled. Then there was Big Alex McDonald, who was said to have purchased a claim on El Dorado for a sack of flour and a side of bacon. It was soon putting out $5,000 of gold a day. He parlayed this into interests in 75 other claims or mining outfits, eventually earning a fortune north of $20 million. He left Dawson temporarily and went to Paris and Rome, where he met the Pope and was made a Knight of St. Gregory. It turned out he'd made a large donation to Father Judge's Catholic Hospital in Dawson. On the way home to Dawson, he married the 20-year-old daughter of the superintendent of the Thames Water Police in London. He built himself a big building in Dawson and entertained. There was a bowl in his office, like the ones containing mints in some offices. But this one had gold nuggets, and Alex always encouraged visitors to take a few. There were a thousand stories about a fellow named Swiftwater Bill, often told or sung live at dance halls, while Swiftwater Bill sat in a private box laughing, applauding vigorously, and loving the attention. He started out as boring old William Gates, a five-foot-five former boatman from Idaho with a drooping mustache. He earned his Swiftwater Bill nickname ironically, after the other guys didn't take his bragging about a river trip around Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, very seriously. But then Bill got rich. He was part of a group of seven miners who took a lay on 13 El Dorado. This was a claim that had an unlucky number and hadn't produced much gold. Taking a lay meant that Swiftwater and his friends didn't buy it, but rented or bought the rights to mine on it in exchange for some cash, supplies, or a share of the gold. They ended up striking incredibly rich pay dirt, which they kept secret somehow, and later bought the claim for $45,000. They took this much gold out of the claim in just six weeks, and after that made big profits. After that, Swiftwater Bill spent a lot more time in Dawson's saloons and dance halls. He fell hard for 19-year-old dancehall star Gussie Lamore, who happened to love fresh eggs. There are several legendary versions of what happened next. One is that Swiftwater was green with jealousy after he saw Gussie in a restaurant eating fresh eggs, incredibly expensive at the time in Dawson, with a gambler. To spite her, he used two coffee cans of gold to buy all the eggs in town. Then he fried them up one at a time and flipped them out the window to a pack of sled dogs, marveling at how good they were at catching them. Gussie and Swiftwater later made up, and she promised to go to San Francisco and marry him. She didn't mention that she was already married to another fellow in San Francisco. A bit later, Swiftwater did go to San Francisco. Allegedly, he was now a business partner with the man behind the Monte Carlo, who somehow thought that Swiftwater was the right man to send to San Francisco to buy supplies and hire dancehall girls. This did not turn out well. He was by now very rich and known as the Prince of the Klondike. As you can see, every possible royal title at some point got attached to some Klondike personality or another. And Swiftwater Bill then got involved with Joe Boyle in raising money for big dredging schemes. You have to wonder how it affects the credibility of a business proposal if one of the proponents is publicly offering to flip cards for $7,000 with any takers. On his way back to Dawson, he stopped in Seattle where he met Mrs. Iola Beebe. She wanted Swiftwater's backing for a hotel business in Dawson. A crowd hoping to meet the Prince of the Klondike was in the hotel hallway, but Swiftwater only admitted Mrs. Beebe to his room and her two daughters. Somehow, in short order, Swiftwater talked the two daughters into joining him on his ship from Seattle north to Alaska. Mrs. Beebe only found out at the last moment, storming aboard the ship in Seattle Harbor, retrieving her daughters, and finding Swiftwater hiding under a lifeboat. 
Amazingly, shortly after, when Mrs. Beebe and her daughters did arrive in Skagway, Swiftwater was already there. Pierre Burton reports that Mrs. Beebe awoke one morning to find that her 15-year-old daughter, Bera, had eloped with Swiftwater. They were married somewhere on the trail to Dawson. When they got to Dawson, instead of eggs, Swiftwater presented his bride with the only melon in the Klondike. Then, even more amazingly, when Mrs. Beebe finally caught up with him, instead of financing her hotel, he talked her into investing in his new mining venture. By the end of the year, Swiftwater was bankrupt. He left Dawson to float down the river to the new Nome Gold Rush with his wife, leaving Mrs. Beebe, his mother-in-law, with no money and a grandchild to take care of. In Nome, he struck it rich, again, and then left his wife to run off with a 17-year-old named Kitty Brandon, who was also his stepniece. Pursued by Kitty's mother, he married Kitty, forgetting that he was already married to Bera. Then, both his stepmothers managed to track him down. After a quick double divorce, he talked his way out of his troubles and declared himself ready for his next wife. Then, it was back to Alaska for the next mining scheme. These were just some of the wild stories that catapulted Dawson to global fame in 1898 to 1899, creating the myths and iconic images that endure today more than 120 years later. But the period that spawned these stories was really incredibly brief. The peak lasted less than a year. As we'll tell you in future episodes, by July of 1899, when around 8,000 stampeders left Dawson for the new gold strike in Nome, Alaska, the bubble in Dawson was really already deflating. If you liked this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really liked the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but, as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back.